You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Psalm 88, Psalm says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand." You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, my companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Lord God of our salvation, we come to you just pleading that you would incline your ear to us. we, We need your help now. We need you to send your Holy Spirit to to tune our ears in to hear uh, your voice speaking. That's what we want to hear. That's what we need to hear. And, And we ask this with faith because we know that you are our Father in heaven. And so it is your fatherly inclination to to give your children what they need. So grant that we would really hear and that we would really receive and that we would really respond to your word this morning and in so doing sanctify us in your word which is truth so make us holy like you are holy make us make us more like our brother jesus in whose name we pray amen well i probably don't have to tell you but this is a heavy hymn it's a heavy psalm and uh it is the sermon psalm uh sean who's not named psalm he's named sean uh, chose for me to preach. And he did that because he loves you. And because he knows that a pa- pastor has this dual job in terms of suffering, in, in relation to suffering, to, to care for those who are suffering 
and to prepare the others to suffer because it's going to come at some point. Now, I said it's heavy. Um, it's, it's actually unique in its heaviness. Let me explain that claim. Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament, right? There, there are many different types of songs in the book of Psalms. Um, it, it can seem like each Old Testament scholar has a list of his own. I mean, we really could have 150 different types of psalms if we got down into the details, one for each psalm. But in general, at its most general, we have psalms of praise. We have psalms of thanksgiving. We have wisdom psalms. We have psalms that celebrate God's law, like Psalm 119, longest psalm in the Psalter. There are royal psalms. You read those psalms sometimes all about the king. There are prophetic psalms, and there are laments. And hymns of lament allow us to, to listen in as the psalmist expresses to God his anguish in the midst of suffering and oppression. We hear his plea for deliverance and rescue and restoration. We hear him declare his hope in God even in the midst of suffering. Now, you may think that this psalm is unique in its heaviness simply because it's a lament. But there are lots of laments in the book of Psalms. If, if you're newer to the Bible, or you just haven't read the book of Psalms in a while, you might expect the most common psalm to be psalms of praise. But that is not the most common psalm. Laments are the most common song in the Psalter. One-third, 50 of the 150 psalms fit in that category of lament. So this psalm, Psalm 88, is not unique in its heaviness because it's a lament. It's unique in its heaviness because there is no resolution in this psalm. Did you notice that as I read? Psalm 88 begins with despair and it ends in darkness. I mean, there is hardly a sadder chapter in the Bible. Other psalms of lament include a statement of hope. They, they, they often end with a confession of confidence in God, even an outburst of praise. Psalm 13, for example, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? I'm drowning in sorrow. My enemy is exalting over me. I'm shaken to the point of death. It's my paraphrase of the heart of Psalm 13. And then David writes this, the last verses. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There is nothing close to that in Psalm 88, which might lead to the question, well, what's it doing in our Bible? Why is it here? I mean, we, we can ask that all we want, but it's here. <laughs> it's in the Word of God, and so we have to deal with it. And, and we deal with it as the Word of God. I mean, think about it. It, it was God who inspired the psalmist to pray like that, right? That's what we believe about everything in that book, right? The Holy Spirit inspired it, which means the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to pray like this. And it was God who preserved this psalm in his book, which means 
Psalm 88 must be good for us. I mean, that's the reason it's here ultimately, for our good. Um, as an aside, let me, let me say this. It's, it's portions like this in the Bible that make me believe the Bible is true. I mean, think about it. If you, if you were trying to compile a book to convince people that your, your man-made religion in this uh, imaginary God named Yahweh is true, you don't include chapters like this. But the Bible is true. And it's real. And it meets us where we are in real life. So we're going to begin by simply walking through the text. We're going to do that under three headings. And the headings align with the three times that the psalmist mentions crying out to God. So we're going to consider the cry of complaint in verses 1 through the first half of verse 9, the cry of questions, second half of 9 verse to verse 12, and then the continued cry, verses 13 through 18. And then after we walk through pretty fairly briefly through the text, we're going to move to application, and I'm going to have even more headings for you that I'll share when we get there. So first, the cry of complaint. Verses 1 through first half and 9. But let's begin by focusing on the first two verses. Verse 1 is the closest thing we have to an expression of hope in the entire psalm. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. The Hebrew word that gets translated salvation can also mean welfare or prosperity. So, O Lord, God of my welfare. Or it can be translated deliverance. O Lord, God of my deliverance. Now, when you consider that opening address to God in the context of the rest of the psalm that's so dark, you see a dim light of hope. There is a dim light right at the beginning in all this darkness. He knows God is a sovereign Savior. And he believes just enough to keep him from utter despair. He knows God is there and that God is sovereign and that God saves and God delivers. And so he begs him to hear his cry. He's continually crying out to God day and night. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop begging God to hear and to answer. Now, let's look at the, the cry itself, his prayer, beginning in verse 3. And, and notice this as, as we walk through it. This is significant, I think. Well, I know. It, it is absolutely crystal clear that this man is suffering, right? It's not clear what the suffering is. There are no specifics about his suffering. We're just left to wonder and maybe make informed guesses, but that's not mainly what we're left to do. We're mainly left to make universal application of the psalm. The lack of specificity in the suffering means this psalm is not limited in its reach to people suffering in a particular way. It's for everyone who suffers. And that's good news, which I trust we'll see even more clearly when we apply this text in just a little while. Look at the psalmist's complaint. That's what, he, that's what this is. I mean, he's just laying out his complaint before the Lord. And for the first part of the complaint, his pronouns are all I and my. 
His soul is full of trouble. The word full there is full like when you eat too much. So he's saying, my soul is stuffed with trouble. He's drawing near to Sheol, the place of the dead. When he talks about going down to the pit, beginning of verse 4, he probably means the grave. This trial has depleted him of all his strength into verse 4. He mentions the dead in the grave specifically in verse 5. So perhaps this was some type of horrible illness that he expected to take his life. Or maybe he's just speaking metaphorically. He's just expressing his sense that this trial is so hard, it feels like he might die. Then, second half of verse 5, the pronouns shift from I, my, to you, yours. And he starts, he's just telling God how he feels. Do you remember me? I'm cut off from you. Verse 6, you put me in this pit. And this affliction feels like a grave. You put me here, and it's dark, and it's deep. And I feel like you're angry with me. Verse 7, you're flooding my life with more than I can handle. You're the one who makes my friends shun me because you've made me a horror. Verse 8, I see no hope of escape. I have cried until I cannot see. Verse 9, can you relate to the psalmist? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with depression and despair in the midst of your circumstances that you just didn't know if you were going to make it. Are you there now? Maybe trapped, it seems, in unrelenting and unremitting depression. God seems deaf and mute to you. You cry out and you receive no answer. There doesn't appear to be any escape from the trial, just years of, of Endless anguish ahead. There is um, such a thing as double darkness. It, it's, it's dark out there, right? Circumstances are, are grim. And it's dark on the inside, right? It's spiritual darkness. And it is dark. And it is deep. And double darkness is horrible. And that's what the psalmist is experiencing as he writes. And if you are too, well, know this, you are, you are not alone. Now, let's look at the, the cry of questions. Next heading, uh, second half of verse 9 through 12. Notice again verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. See, he, he doesn't stop praying. And they're, they're desperate prayers. This, this is his posture. Right? Just hands raised to heaven. The, the psalmist is having what the Puritan John Owen called hard thoughts about God. He, he's expressing uh, in his desperate prayers what he perceives to be true about God. What he feels. Now, it's true God is sovereign over all our suffering. We just sang it. But, but the psalmist is doubting that there could possibly be a reason, that there could possibly be a purpose to his suffering, especially when God remains silent. And then he turns these hard thoughts he's having into questions. That's verses 10 through 12. Now, we have to be careful not to trip up on the psalmist's incomplete view of the afterlife in these verses. God saw fit to reveal his truth, the contents of this book, progressively. 
So the psalmist did not know what we now know about what happens when you die. But that's not the point here at all. He's not talking about what happens when you die. What he's doing is he's telling God which attributes of God would be revealed if God simply gave relief, which he believes God can do. He's saying, if this thing kills me, Lord, no one is going to see you work wonders. If you don't rescue me, I can't give a testimony of praise to your power. If you let me linger in this anguish, who's going to see your love and your faithfulness and your righteousness? Your reputation is at stake, Lord, in the depth and the darkness of my troubles. And we pray like that sometimes, don't we? Lord, why does this marriage have to be so hard? I mean, wouldn't it be better for us and the kids if you just broke in, just made us humble, made us loving, made us understanding? If only he cared, then it would be better. Why, Lord, doesn't he care? If only she showed interest, Lord, why? why? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that help our marriage better display the gospel, your love for your people? Lord, why am I alone? And wouldn't it be better if he was still here to disciple his children and to be an example of godliness to his grandparents, to his grandchildren? Wouldn't I be more useful to you without all this crippling grief and with him by my side? Lord, why won't you just take the pain away? I mean, wouldn't it be an awesome testimony to your power to work miracles? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it permit me to serve in the church more effectively? Lord, why won't you save my child? I have been crying out for the sake of her soul for years. Wouldn't it bring deeper joy and faith to our family and to our church? Couldn't you use one more worshiper? Wouldn't it declare the power of your gospel to save sinners? I mean, we, we all have our whys, don't we? What's your why? It's okay to ask God why. Then he continues to ask why in verses 13 through 18. So last heading now, the cry continues. Verse 13 again, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. So he begins every day crying out to God, and still there's lingering questions, verses 14 through 18. Why do you cast me away? Why do you remove the sense of your presence from me? All I'm aware of is my helplessness and the flood of troubles that's overtaken me. I can barely keep my head above water, Lord. I'm going to drown. He's just rehearsing the same complaints, isn't he? Only now he says he can't even remember a day before his trial. From his youth now. Isn't that what it seems when in the midst of a trial? We can't even remember what life was like without the trial. So he, he looks up to God and he's terrified. And, and he looks out to others and he feels shunned and betrayed. His only friend is the darkness. Hello darkness, my old friend. And darkness has the last word, literally. Right? The last word of this psalm in the Hebrew, as it is in the, in the uh, uh, version I read, is darkness. So it, it really does begin with despair and end in darkness. And it's all despair 
and darkness in between. So, again, why is this psalm in our Bible? Why did God inspire the psalmist to pray this way? Why did he preserve it for us? What's the purpose? Or let's ask it like this. How ought this psalm function in our lives? How ought this lament function in our lives? I have four answers to that question just by way of application. We're going to bring this saddest of all psalms to bear on our lives. So how ought this psalm function in our lives? First answer. It ought to help us see that the psalmist's cry is our cry. The psalmist cries our cry, by which I mean we just might find ourselves in a similar condition, praying the same way. Some of you are there. Some will be. We all suffer. And for some, it seems unrelieved suffering, an unending trial, a lifelong grief. That, that is all a very real possibility for real Christians, true believers. Sometimes we find ourselves in the deep pit of darkness and doubt, crying out to a God who seems to be indifferent to our agony. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't merely happen to young, immature Christians. That happens to mature, seasoned, wise saints. Now, on what basis do I make that claim? Well, I make that claim on the basis of who wrote Psalm 88. I've been referring to him as the psalmist, but we know his name. It's right there in the heading over the psalm. He's Heman of the Ezraites. It's, he's one of the psalmists uh, who are called the sons of Korah. You see a lot of those psalms in your Bible. And you can read about Heman outside the book of Psalms. You can read about some things about his life in the historical books of First and Second Chronicles. There we learn that he was a Levitical singer and musician, a songwriter in Israel, obviously. He's writing in the book of Psalms. He was a worship leader. And you might be thinking, ah, I get it now, the artistic type, moody. But that's not my point. That's not my point. My point is, he was chosen by God to lead Israel in giving thanks. That's what it says in 1 Chronicles 16.41. In 1 Chronicles 25.1, it says that he prophesied. He's a prophet. Just a couple verses later, verse 4, it says he's described as the king's seer, S-E-E-R, or the king's prophet. So he was a prophet to David. He was a prophet to Solomon. We also find out he had 14 sons and three daughters. The dude was a dad. And, and in 1 Chronicles 25, 6, it says that all his children were, quote, under the direction of their father in providing music in the house of the Lord. I mean, this is the Von Trapp family of the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians, or, sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 12, when, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the uh, just-completed temple in Jerusalem, Heman is standing at the altar with 120 other priests. He's named. So what's my point? This is a mature believer. The man who wrote this is a leader in Israel. He's a servant of the king. He's responsible to lead God's people in worship. He writes the songs they use to worship. 
And this is a guy who's having his devotions every day. Even in his deep darkness, he never stops crying out to God. His doctrine is sound. His songs, including this one, are uniquely inspired by God and stand with the rest of God's word contained in the Bible. That's the kind of songs this guy wrote. That's the man who wrote this psalm. And his experience is not uncommon. His experience is not foreign to believers. And his experience, your experience of deep double darkness, our experience, is not necessarily a sign of God's disapproval. It's not evidence that you're just immature. It's not an indication that God has cast you away. You know what it is? It's proof that we live in a sin-cursed world of futility. And no one escapes the consequences. So, this psalm should function to adjust our expectations. Now, I'm not saying what I'm about to say to be, be funny. I believe it's true, but you might be tempted to chuckle. Here it is. Every day is a bad day. Every day is a bad day. Every day is a bad day in some respect on a planet in a universe that's been subjected to futility because of sin. I mean, is that your expectation when you open your eyes in the morning? I'm going to bump into something unpleasant today. Today might be the first day of prolonged and agonizing suffering. I'm not being cynical here. I'm being a realist. I mean, think about it. How, how can we expect anything other than that in this life under the sun having read this entire book? It's what God's book promises us. And if we, if we want to live the, the fantasy life and naively go out our door every day expecting that all's going to go well for me because after all, I'm a king's kid, then you have to rip this page out of your Bible. In fact, you, you have to rip lots of pages out of your Bible. If you want to go through life with the expectation that you deserve the good life here and now, your best life now, and doggone it, I'm going to have the good life because I'm a good person. And you might think, I... Man, I don't think, that's not me. Well, listen to your thoughts. Just listen to your thoughts when something goes wrong and adjust your expectations to this. Every day is a bad day in a sin-cursed universe. Then you're a realist. But I'm not merely encouraging us to be realists. I want us, God wants us to be happy realists. Happy realists realize we deserve nothing good. Happy realists expect a bad day, but they know, we know, that God's mercies are new every morning. His undeserved favor and blessing, every morning new. Life is filled with God's good gifts for us to enjoy on our bad days. See, if, if we don't adjust our expectations, we are going to be mightily disillusioned when the unexpected suffering comes. And we are going to turn dangerously bitter when that friend turns on us. Life is hard every single day. And for some, it's un unspeakably hard. But suffering and hardship and pain and opposition and persecution are not the exception They're the norm. 
That's the message of the Bible. And if we don't get that down, we won't make it to the end. And the end is the fullness of joy and pleasures forever in God's presence. No bad day, just one eternally long good day, perfect day. We won't get there if we don't adjust our expectations. And while we're here, we won't fully enjoy the light and the blessing here that breaks in through the darkness of every bad day. The darkness here just serves to magnify the light of God's blessing. That's why a jeweler places a diamond on a, a black velvet backdrop. That's what the hardship is to God's grace and mercy that we experience every day. Now, that is not to say that we are to go through life like a stoic, right? Just unaffected by trials and afflictions. This psalm would not exist if that was what God expects of us. God gives us permission in Psalm 88 to feel and to express our feelings when it hurts, to express it to him, to ask why. I mean, think about it. The, the, the very existence of this psalm is a testimony to God's patient grace with us. He's so patient. He's so gracious. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. He knows how things are going to affect us. He knows it's going to hurt. And he knows that when we're hurt, it skews our view of reality. And yet he invites us to cry out to him. One last thing to say here on this point. The fact that we know the psalmist's name points to purpose in our suffering. Think about it. Heman wrote down his anguish cry to the Lord. He didn't understand what was happening. He didn't understand why it was happening. And here we are, centuries later, gleaning wisdom and insight and help and grace because he went through a long, hard trial and wrote about it. And think of all the people who have already and who will continue to get grace from Psalm 88. God's plan for Heman's suffering was way bigger than Heman could ever imagine. And his plan for your suffering may be beyond your comprehension as well. This cry in Psalm 88 is our cry. Next application, and these next ones are a lot shorter. Uh, the next way the psalm functions in our life is to help us help those who cry. If you're not living in Psalm 88 right now, great. Praise God for that. But you are more than likely sitting in the vicinity of someone who is. So let's learn how, from this psalm how to help those who cry like Heman cried. And first, we have to remember the point I made. I'm going to drive this one home. We have to remember it when we're suffering, and we have to remember it when we're helping others in their suffering. Mature Christians who read their Bible and pray every day, who strive to live a life of obedience, who have good doctrine, including their doctrine of God's sovereignty and human suffering, sometimes find themselves badly beaten up by giant despair and locked in Doubting Castle. I'm rereading The Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, one of the worst things that we can be to someone in despair is condescending. Instead, we ought to be patient 
and we ought to be compassionate. We might find ourselves in the grip of giant despair one day. So it's good to think about how we would want to be treated. Sometimes all we need to do is weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Sometimes, a lot of the time, maybe most of the time, an exhortation isn't the best thing. Sometimes, most of the time, a theological explanation of Romans 8.28 is not what would help most. Sometimes it's silence. Sometimes it's a hug. Sometimes it's a meal. I can't say it any better than the scholar and author D.A. Carson says it in his book on suffering, How Long, O Lord. He wrote this. Anyone who has suffered devastating grief or dehumanizing pain has at some point been confronted by near relatives of Job's miserable comforters. Remember those guys? When they just came and sat with Job, everything was fine. As soon as they opened their mouths, it all went south. They come with their cliches and tired, pious mouthings. They engender guilt when they should be administering balm. They utter solemn truths where compassion is needed. They exhibit strength and exhort to courage where they would be more comforting if they simply wept. We can learn how to help those who cry. Next purpose of this psalm that I'll mention is this. It teaches us that this cry, Heman's cry, is a cry of faith. Now, how can I say that a psalm so full of despair and darkness is a cry of faith? How can a cry of such anguish be a cry of faith? How can giving vent to hard thoughts about God be an act of faith? Well, Heman knows that God is his deliverer. The, 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 only with God is he going to find welfare and safety. And though he's not experiencing welfare, he's not experiencing safety from his trial, though he doesn't really feel God's presence at all except to assault him, that's his experience, right? Though that's his experience, that's how he feels. In spite of that, he never stops crying out to God because of who he knows God to be. He clings to what he knows to be true. The Lord is the God of my salvation. And that gives him just enough strength to cling even in the darkness. I mean, he's still in the pit. He's still in deep double darkness at the end of this psalm. His prayers are going unanswered from what he can tell. Yet he still calls out. Why? Because he trusts that only God can rescue and restore. Only God can give hope. I mean, when we go into the darkness especially this kind of double darkness where, where, where prayer just it gives us nothing in return. We have to have faith. We have to believe in those moments what we know to be true about God. We, we, we have to take hold with all our might of the fact that He is the God of our salvation or we will lose our grip and will fall away. I, to be beaten and bruised and not understand why, and, and to, to not even know if it's ever going to stop in, in this lifetime, and yet still cry out to the God of my salvation, that's a miracle of faith. It's an absolute miracle of faith. I, I would contend that a Christian enduring, ongoing suffering in faith, still clinging to what 
he or she knows to be true, still crying out to God, that's a greater miracle than healing. That's a greater miracle than deliverance from a trial. And when we do that, when we cling to what we know to be true, even when we're not feeling it, and we cry out to God even when it feels like he's not listening, what we're doing in those moments is we're flexing the muscle of faith. And as we exercise that muscle in the deep dark, it gets stronger and stronger. I mean, what this means is is you can get up off your knees after an hour prayer and feel no hope. Right? No different than when you got on your knees. When you get up, you feel no different. I mean, does that, that happens to me regularly in my devotions. When Delane says, didn't you have your devotions? I said, yeah, I have my devotions. They just didn't take. You know, I, it happens to us. But that time spent on our knees is an exercise of faith that's strengthening us. And God is saying to some of you this morning, sing this song with Heman and trust me. Cry out to me. I'm making you stronger than you realize. I'm pressing down on a piece of coal to make a diamond. There's a a great illustration of this in The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. You you didn't think I was going to come here without a Tolkien or Lewis (laughs) quote. Thinking of the book, not the movie, but if you've seen the movie, you're going to know the situation. The two hobbits, Frodo, the ring bearer, and Sam, his friend and helper, they're in the wicked land of Mordor, and in the distance, they see Mount Doom, and that's where they have to get to destroy the evil ring and the fires where it was forged. And they've already been traveling for what seems like a lifetime. They've faced hardship after hardship. Their food and water is almost gone. Their strength is used up, and they still have a long way to go. And we hear Sam's thoughts as he resolves to help Frodo, the ring bearer, to his last step and then die with him. And then Tolkien writes this. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him. And he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. That's what happens when we cry out in faith in the darkness. Finally, last way, last way that this cry of Heman in Psalm 88 functions in our life is by pointing us to the cry, Christ's cry from the cross. I mean, we we know something that the psalmist didn't know. We know that darkness does not have the last word. And it's not the last word because God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came willingly to be the God of our salvation. And he did it by facing ultimate darkness for us. In our place, for three hours, hanging on that cross, suspended between earth and heaven. Christ endured eternal darkness. He endured the eternal damnation for the sins of his people. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He got the deepest darkness. He got God's real wrath. 
He was truly abandoned so that our darkness would one day end and so that we would never know what it's like to suffer under the righteous anger of God and so that God will never abandon us. I mean, think of it. Christ had every opportunity to abandon us. He could have fled the garden with the other disciples. He could have called down every angel from heaven to destroy every Jewish leader and Roman official conspiring against him. He could have stepped off the cross without enduring death for our sin, but he didn't. He didn't abandon us in his darkest moment. Why would he abandon us now in our darkest moments? He won't because he loves us. In fact, because of the darkness and wrath and abandonment he endured, all our suffering now produces for us an eternal weight of glory, which we will experience because, in answer to Heman's questions, God will work wonders for the dead. He will raise us up to praise him. We will know his steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness beyond the grave because Christ rose from the dead. And so we can be sure that our resurrection is coming. And if resurrection is what awaits us, then we can be spared utter despair because there's nothing that ails us that a good resurrection won't cure. Let's pray.